brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead contains scenes of violence that may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted. Around the monitor consoles, commotion has been made even more frantic by an angered Dan Givens, obviously one of the station managers. Givens. What the hell's going on? Who killed those supers? No one has any authority to do that. Givens spots Fran as she moves into the room. Givens. Garrett, who told you to kill those supers? Fran. Nobody, I killed them. They're out of state. Do you know you're on the air? What the hell's going on? Givens. I want those supers on the air all the time. Fran. Are you willing to murder people by sending them out to stations that have closed down? Givens. Without those rescue situations on screen, every minute people won't watch us. They'll tune out. Fran stares at the red-faced man in disbelief. Givens. I want that list up on the screen every minute that we're on the air. Fran is about to say something in anger, but before she can, one of the technicians, having heard Givens, gets up from the control panel and starts to walk away. Givens. Lucas! Lucas! What the hell are you doing? Get back on this console! Lucas. Anybody need a ride? Two other men from various positions in the room snatch up personal effects and follow the technician toward the door. The door is guarded by a nervous officer. The same officer who had stopped Fran before. Givens. Officer! Officer! You stop them! Stop those men! Get back on this console! A frantic hubbub begins over the lack of console control. People rush in and out. The floor director's voice can be heard over a talkback system. Voices. What the hell's going on in there? Switch! Switch! There's no switcher. We're losing the picture. He doesn't even know he's got to be here. What is this? The show of football game. Get that idiot off the air. Give it. Officer, stop those men. Lucas, get back here on the console. Damn. The young officer faces the men as they reach his post. He takes a grip on his rifles, opens the door, and lets the group through. Then he runs out himself, deserting the losing cause. Givens jumps toward the console. He frantically tries to work the complex dials and pots. Givens. Get somebody in here who can run this thing! Get that fucking idiot off the air! Hey! Run this fucking on triple pay! We're staying on the air! Fran just shook her head in disbelief and moved off slowly toward the studio. Excerpted from the 1977 working draft of the motion picture Dawn of the Dead by George A. Romero, and including audio of Jonathan Davis reading from the novelization by Romero and Susanna Sparrow. We're cheating a bit with the minutes at this moment. The 1978 extended con film festival version we use as our guide runs the sequence across about 75 seconds, but I thought it made sense to cover all of the Givens material in one episode. Argento's European cut, as in most instances, lasts less than a minute and spans the time codes 332 through 423. Romero's preferred cut is also less than a minute, spanning 302 through 355. In the later cuts, the Goblin score is used oppressively, drowning out bits of dialogue in its sinister march. Aside from the audio mix and a few lingering shots here and there, the fidelity of the scenes across all the cuts is well-preserved, likely owing to the dynamic exchanges between Fran Parker and Dan Givens. One of my other favorite movies is Aliens, so it may be my bias speaking, but I've always assumed Dawn of the Dead had an influence on Jim Cameron. If that is the case, I suppose Givens is the Carter J. Burke of this feature. You certainly get a sense of his aggressive avarice in the screenplay and novelization, but I feel that's reductive here. Dan Dietrich's portrayal has an edge of anxiety and compulsion here, less like he's ignoring Fran's concerns and more like he's unable to switch tracks on the directives handed down to him. You might almost think Givens' coping mechanism against the zombie plague is to not consider it at all. As if all this, this bullshit he thinks is so important won't soon be kissed goodbye. 
If he can just keep doing his job, everything will take care of itself. And he'll still be sitting pretty when this thing blows over. We all know people like that, who aren't actively evil like Burke, but simply lack the self and situational awareness to adapt before it's too late. Givens could have easily been as one note as one of the rednecks coming up later, but Dietrich's performance adds layers. Welcome to the commentary for Dawn of the Dead. Ken Forey. Hi, this is David Emge. This is Scott Reiniger. Galen Rusk. Oh, my Dan God. Dietrich. Dan Dietrich. Dietrich, Dietrich. Who's no longer with us. Oh, really? But yeah. No is he longer. gone? Yes, yeah, he's gone. That's he too bad. Dan, Dan Dietrich. Daniel W. Dietrich II was born on October 21, 1941 in Chester Springs, Pennsylvania. He was the son of H. Richard and Mildred Dietrich, and heir to the family conglomerate Dietrich Corporation. Their holdings included Luden's, the famous cough drop and candy company, which they sold to Hershey's in 1986. Daniel was the last survivor of three brothers. H. Richard Dietrich Jr. was an art patron specializing in American colonial history and founded the Dietrich American Foundation in 1963. Richard Jr. took over Dietrich Corp. upon his father's early death at age 54, forcing him to quit the Columbia Business School. Richard continued to direct the company until its sale, devoting the rest of his life to philanthropy and conservation, and serving as a trustee with the Philadelphia Museum of Art. He died at age 69 of melanoma in 2007. William Braun Dietrich was the president of the William B. Dietrich Foundation, dedicated primarily to architectural restoration. He passed away at age 67 in 2010. Dan Dietrich himself had three sons, William S. Heldereth, Daniel W. Dietrich III, and Adam Dietrich. He married Ginny Dietrich in the mid-60s, and they were together until her death in the year 2000. Dan Dietrich spent his last years with his partner, Deborah Ullman, herself a media veteran and decades-long yoga instructor. Daniel Dietrich graduated from the Episcopal Academy and Hamilton College with a bachelor's degree in art history. An active alumnus, he served on the architectural committee that designed the Welland Museum, which includes a gallery named in his honor. He once served as vice president of Luton's Candy of Reading, Pennsylvania, but ultimately preferred to focus on the arts as president of his own foundation and trust. Dietrich was an actor in the company at Theater of the Living Arts in Philadelphia in the early 60s, under the renowned avant-garde art director Andre Gregory, where he performed alongside Morgan Freeman, Wallace Shawn, and many others. Dietrich served continuously on the Institute of Contemporary Art, University of Pennsylvania's board beginning in 1970. In 1973, Dietrich was briefly featured in the film Fleshpot on 42nd Street. IMDb summarizes it succinctly as, A street whore desperately seeks love and acceptance against the backdrop of the criminal element of early 1970s Times Square. The movie starred the infamous adult cinema actors Laura Cannon and Harry Reams, who also appeared together in the notorious simulated snuff porno film Forced Entry the same year. The uncensored version of Fleshpot saw the pair having graphic sex, but a softcore version is more commonly available under the title The Girls of 42nd Street and can be streamed for free on the Internet Archive. Cannon plays Dusty Cole, a small-time hustler who spent several months trading sex for room and board in a quasi-relationship with an older man. Unfortunately, her roommate didn't see it that way, insisting that she get a job and clean house. Incensed, Dusty steals everything she can find in his hovel of any value and sells it to a shady pawnbroker. When that doesn't yield much, she agrees to a backroom proposition with the dealer, only to rob him as well. Exiting, she runs into her old friend Cherry Lane, a trans prostitute played by Neil Flanagan. Cherry agrees to take on Dusty as a roommate, and even shares one of her regulars, neglecting to mention that John is into rough trade. Later, Dusty stumbles upon another old friend, Billy, and they go out to a bar together. Hey, Matt, bring some drinks. Well, what'll it be, Billy? Beer. Beer for Billy, and what do you want, Dusty? Usual for Dusty, and the same for me. So, Billy, how you been? How's your mother? Still bitching. Maybe if you got a job, she wouldn't bitch so much. Look who's talking. What do you mean? I work. My office stretches from Upper Broadway to the end of Christopher Street. A good woman like me, you can't keep cooped up. She's got to roam. So how you been, Dustin? I haven't seen you for a coon's age. Don't let the well, niggas hear you. I was playing house with some bartender and So what happened? 
the usual. The walls closed in. Did you get anything out of it? We did okay. You think you could loan me a few bucks? I'll pay you back as soon as I can. Well, what's the matter, Billy? Things not going too well? Sort of. Oh, sure. Here. Take this. I don't need that much. Keep it. Oh, shit. Here come the Simmons sisters. Remember, hon, charity begins at home. <laughs> After multiple larcenous displays, Dusty's enthusiastic financial aid to Billy demonstrates a softer side of the character. In fact, as the movie continues, she performs multiple selfless acts for Billy and the caddy Cherry, who herself has an anguished scene after being violently rejected by a trick. Cherry recounts her perilous transition from drag to living as an aging trans woman, scraping by on the few takers for her services. While humanizing, the revelation also sets Dusty up to agree to an unwanted gangbang involving the brutal John. Worse, Dusty's sacrifice is later shown to be less than fully appreciated by Cherry, as demonstrated in Dietrich's other scene in the flick. 150 bucks, that's a lot of bread. I didn't know she liked gangbangs. Girl could get cancer that way. I don't think you ought to talk about Dusty like that. What she does is her business. You don't hear us talking about what we do all the time. I didn't ask you to listen, did I? The whole bar can hear you. Oh, why don't you go tell your mother she wants you? Dusty's been very good to you, Cherry. Dusty's been a friend to you. That's more than you can say about these two. Well, what do you know, Mr. Righteous, all of a sudden? I'll see you around. Not if we see you first. She is an M, is she? I think she is a little. I think you're right. Hal used to get pretty rough with his broads. Well, to each his own. She must not have any morals at all. I mean, taking that guy's wallet like she did. Well, you should have seen that guy's face when he was pulling his pants up. <laughs> So how much does she get for a cricket? Street trade? Not as much as she used to. Do you like rooming with her? Well, I don't like having to room with anybody. But she pays her half of the rent. Is she better anyway? I, I do better than her most of the time anyway. <laughs> Why don't you get yourself a new roommate? Well, I will as soon as I get back on my feet. I need her right now financially. But then I think I'll ask Peaches to move in with me. Two drags are more compatible. Yeah, they can share all their drags. Yeah, and you never know with a whore what she's liable to come down with. Some friend. Dusty. Thanks a lot. You sure know how to make friends. 
I was only kidding. How long you been standing there? Long enough. What, you want a drink? I'll buy you a drink. Take this. You're going to need it more than I do. Hey, you did all right. Until I met you. Well, fuck you. You already have. Fleshpot was directed by the misanthropic slum auteur Andy Milligan, whose movies tended to focus on society's unwanted. While certainly acting in the more broad method of old Hollywood, the cast turns in surprisingly affecting performances. I have to single out Harry Reams as Bob, a would-be life-changing suitor of Dusty's, who comes across as so sweet and accepting for a guy I usually associate with extra cheesy comedic porn roles in flicks like Deep Throat. I wouldn't go so far as to recommend Fleshpot, especially with its ridiculously bleak ending, but it was much better than I would have expected from this type of exploitation cinema. Also in 1973, Diedrich was the titular ghoul in Malatesta's Carnival of Blood. Step right in, ladies and gentlemen. Step right in. No, no, no. Don't be afraid to bring the children. We have special treats for children. Just five tickets to see the world's only living two-headed giraffe. He won't be alive much longer. Or see the Siamese twins wiggle and swim in their big blue bottle don't be afraid they can't get out see Gilda the bearded giantess waltz with Bobo the dwarf or simply try your luck at try your luck at try your luck at try your luck at try your luck try your luck try your luck no one will come within 500 yards of this place, except me. Some kids were killed here, or at least that's the story we're all weaned on. Another duck bites the dust. What do you want? What everybody wants. Money. Affection. But what I want is different from what I got. Totally dead. A total wreck. But I think I finally got it in working shape. You want to come over and try it out? You work for Mr. Blood. My name is Kit. I flunked out of school and, uh... Providing I work like hell, Mr. Blood has given me the dubious distinction of running that questionable wreck they call the Tunnel of Love. What's your name? Why? I thought it was part of the game. Vina. Vina Norris. My parents let me stay at home. I guess they're afraid to have me stay out here. We've got some visitors. Not to be confused with 1970s non-possessive Carnival of Blood, Malatesta's variety is like if Don Coscarelli directed a remake of Carnival of Souls, co-written by David Lynch and produced by Herschel Gordon Lewis, but the worst version of all that. The acting is atrocious, it's plotting and amateurish, with some junior high level set dressings and effects. That kind of makes sense as it was apparently directed by a junior high school teacher and only played in a few Texas drive-ins, which I take a curious pride in. He was buried for 30 years until a student of the director's cast pestered him to finally see it, since it never played in PA. He managed to get Zotrope Studios to remaster it, and resultant viewings deemed it worthy of championing by psychotropic cinephiles. See, the production does have after-hours access to a working, if decaying, amusement park due for demolition, the inspiration for making the film in the first place. If you like videos about abandoned structures like malls, this is something for you, and it looks pretty neat. The movie is also firmly committed to a dream logic presentation that keeps you on your toes. They hang a Volkswagen bug upside down and pad it out to make it into a 
womb mouth thing. And Hervé Villachez from Fantasy Island turns up a few times, including once the poker girl hardened the tit with a stick. No, I don't know why. This thing barely makes a lick of sense, and probably as a result, it's a lot more interesting than a more plot-heavy and run-of-the-mill slasher-slash-zombie movie. I mean, seriously, it plays like a slasher movie, but there are also what appears to be flesh-eating zombies in this thing. But they're also like classic Lugosi Haitian zombies under the sway of an evil master. There would appear to be a guy named Blood, who actually runs the carnival and drops an awful lot of passive aggression. But he ultimately answers to Dietrich's Malatesta, who's barely in the movie. He just throws out a few commands and slinks around in a Dracula suit. There is, no lie, a sublime shot of him riding a flying carousel following a mass murderer. You know, the zombies here have the same gray-blue skin complexion problem as the ones in Dawn, so it's maybe too bad Savini didn't see this one first. Anyway, again, no glowing recommendations, but if you do some shrooms and stream it for free, it might be worth your while. Vina, have you started dinner yet? Yes, Mom. Vina? Yes, Mother, I started dinner. Why don't you stay for dinner, Mr. Blood? Thank you, ma'am. Thank you very much for your generous hospitality. But I prefer to take my meals at home. Doctor's orders. I... Oh, how about a beer, then? Thanks again, but no thanks. I'm on a very strict diet. Oh, I don't believe it. You look pretty healthy to me, Mr. Blood. <laughs> <laughs> Discipline, Mrs. Norris. My metabolism is most unusual. Five years ago, the doctor gave me six months. Strict regimen. I feel every moment as a triumph over death. Who's in there? My parents. Shh. Uh, I can't talk now. Can I meet you later? Okay, the ghoul's eye. Listen, something bad's happened. Something to the Davises. Look here, what did I tell you? Carnival's a great place for young people. Your daughter's made friends already. Hello, kid. Through for the day? It's a shy one, isn't he? See you tomorrow, Norris. We'll get you settled in. Lucky's here, Frank. I know it. And something awful's happened to him. If he's here, we'll find him. I don't like that, Mr. Blood. We should leave, Frank. We should get out of here tonight. This place, it's evil. I can feel it. And if something's happened to him, then I'll have my revenge. Aside from his cameo in Dawn of the Dead, this was the end of Dietrich's screen career. Of his time as a performer, Dietrich said, all involved work feverishly to create something ephemeral. The action happens behind the scenes, so when the curtain rises, we have the stillness. Dietrich was a scholar and collector of influential contemporary American art. He described his collecting focus as American with spiritual influences. He was a great lover of opera and classical music, producing a documentary trilogy about Gustav Mahler with director Jason Starr. Following decades of quiet patronage, loaning and providing funds for the acquisition of art, Dietrich received a spotlight for securing the Roxy Payne sculpture Symbiosis, a silvery, stainless, tree-like form at the head of the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. It is my deepest pleasure to have this day come. Last June, as we celebrated the installation of Symbiosis, which most of you know was on loan for a year, courtesy of the artist and Marion Boski Gallery, we installed it with the cooperation of Philadelphia's Department of Parks and Recreation. And at that time, I observed that the sculpture nestled between Fremier's gilded Joan of Arc and de Suvereau's very different, robust Iroquois just seemed so right. 
I said then that I thought it would be a dream come true if symbiosis struck the heart of someone who would help purchase it. And sometimes dreams come true. We are profoundly grateful to Dan Dietrich, who is here with us tonight. generous gift to the APA and by extension to the public, the city, our visitors, is such a major gift. Thank you so much. You're all such dear people. (laughs) I'm very happy to help assist in making this piece of sculpture come to Philadelphia. It operates in such a different way than some sculpture that is proud and heroic and stands out in the sun and commemorates people and maybe speaks of issues of hope. What we have here, and it astonished me when I first saw it next to the Desuvero, is an enigma. It sends you back into yourself. It has a hushed voice. You have a tree form that's fallen into another tree, a smaller tree, a sapling. It has died. It cannot regenerate. And the tree that it has fallen into is clearly more than likely going to die as well. And yet in the midst of this looping, this symbiosis in a way. An arch is created through the middle. The arch itself as a form is almost taking what is in nature and leaving us back in the ruins something architectural. Arches have always been known as points of triumph or great battles won and uh, this is much more ambivalent of course to be able to add a piece that in a way is part of the emotional spine of the city. All these sculptures in a way are part of a humanistic spine that runs through our city, which is a backward city in some ways and great for poets. It's great for sculpture, too. We can scale ourselves to it. And I'm very, very happy to be here and to have been able to uh, help finally do something for the great people who have taken sculpture and made it not only something to champion, but something to explore beyond itself into a world that is maybe going to give us some hope and scale us better to each other in our community. In 2014, Dietrich was named an Institute of Contemporary Art Director Emeritus and offered a $10 million endowment to the University of Pennsylvania's Institute of Contemporary Art under the museum directorship currently held by Amy Sadeo. He asked that name the ICA endowment the Inchworm Fund following an Albert P. Ryder quote, Have you ever seen an inchworm crawl up a leaf or twig? And there clinging to the very end, revolves in the air, feeling for something to reach. That's like me. I am trying to find something out there beyond the place on which I have a footing. A self-effacing philanthropist who valued quiet exploration as much as artistic adventure, Daniel Dietrich died age 73 on September 1st, 2015. I'm still figuring out how I'm going to do a Movies by Minutes podcast, especially when it's front-loaded with cast and crew as Dawn. 
At some point, we're going to spend a good hour or so with just four actors hanging out in a mall. And it would not be a good hour of podcasting to spend all of our silver dollars on the earliest episodes of what I hope would be a half-hour show at most. So I'm going to defer the credits and deeper dives into some of the casts featured in these opening minutes for a later time. We'll just continue with a brief overview. I'm pretty sure that's presenter Billy Silver Dollar Baxter passing paperwork to talk show host Timmy Berman while he's exploding over Fran and Dan interrupting the show. One of the many things that drive me batty about the Argento cut are the oversized Wes Anderson credits covering everyone's faces and shuffling rapidly by. After watching the segment a few dozen times, I still can't tell if Chris Romero's TV producer is shouting for Dan Givens or if the guy who takes her place to type out the revised list of rescue stations is also a Dan. She's rather noisy and performative about it, which first attracts his attention. So he may have just recognized that she was abandoning her post rather than responding to his name. It's far less ambiguous in the book, though, as the line is clearly attributed to Dusty. You may recall the shouty console operator with the brown hair, glasses, and goatee who appears throughout this minute. I still haven't identified the actor, but to my ear, Fran called him Dick when she killed the Supers. And when he gets up to abandon the console, Givens repeatedly calls him Lucas. Both names are used in the script, though not necessarily for the same character. But we can safely assume they are consolidated into Dick Lucas. Not to play any stereotypes, but in the Italian edit, the camera lingers on the ladies in the control booth. Liz Augenstein gets an alternate take with several seconds more screen time and an extra line. It appears she's taking up Lucas on his offer for a ride. Finally, there's a Norelco television camera visible, which indicates WGON-TV may have been a CBS affiliate. Norelco marketed professional video cameras in the 60s and 70s, with CBS being a major purchaser. This included the PC-60, a pioneering color camera that served as the industry standard for a time. So much so, NBC used them, despite owning RCA and producing a competing camera. Speaking of cameras, I still can't not see the one with a piece of paper adhered on it, emblazoned with an obviously makeshift WGON written in stencil. The other camera with the colored WGON TV logo turned out so much nicer. There aren't many zombie film series that reach four entries. You could argue that Romero's dead films were a tetralogy, but he also released two-thirds of a second trilogy that muddy those waters. Anyway, I'd rather save sequels to Dawn for much later in this podcast's life. Few would claim that the Return of the Living Dead series made it, since there was a huge time and quality gap between even the third installment and the awful, unnumbered direct-to-video entries. My thinking is that the most inarguable option is the Spanish Rec or Record series, even though there are technically six related films. So pardon me as I give an overview of the Rec quadrilogy, which is a made-up word, and like the Alien Quadrilogy, it benefits from not being held accountable for not keeping it to four chapters. So record, typically stylized as a red dot preceded by an REC to indicate the icon you see when you record video. Released in 2007, Rec is 28 days earlier in an isolated building as the first rage zombies attack. 
The better modern zombie movies have two things in common, fast monsters and exhilarating first quarters. The Dawn of the Dead remake offered its opening 10 minutes online, making it one of the most badass trailers of all time, because who didn't crave more after that? Of course, the movie couldn't sustain that momentum, and most of the characters, once properly introduced, proved rather unlikable. Regardless, it was still good stuff, and sustained the heat zombies had picked up a few years prior. Wreck, on the other hand, is like extending that prologue to full length though not necessarily standard feature length, coming in at just over one and a quarter hours. It's about a television crew working on a puff piece about firefighters before finding themselves trapped in an apartment building with a deeply unhealthy element. After a deliberate build, Mame erupts that runs through the end of the picture. The cast is made up of unknowns, at least on this side of the Atlantic, who speak in brief bursts of dialogue, and you really don't get to know anyone. There's a cute, toothy reporter that's a bit more polished than the rest, and though clearly ambitious and somewhat opportunistic, she never beats the audience over the head with her character flaws. The true point-of-view character is the cameraman Pablo, through whose lens the viewer sees the proceedings, essentially turning the film into a virtual experience. That makes for a harrowing trip. As finding oneself in the path of mindless humans moving with the speed and ferocity of the rage carriers on 28 Days Later will twist your panties up tight. It's typically a backhanded compliment to refer to a film in thrill ride terms. But in the most glowing sense, record is just that. When the Blair Witch Project was being ridiculously overhyped, this was the movie everyone was expecting to see. Wreck is easily one of the finest straight horror movies of the past few decades, and will likely earn a place on many all-time greatest lists. See it in the dark with someone you trust. For DVD extras, there's only Wreck, Making Up, a fast-paced documentary running a bit under 19 minutes. It gives you all the information you need about the production, from actors not knowing what they were in store for due to having scripts withheld until the start of each chronological shot day, to real-time takes lasting 20 minutes and from the ground to the roof. It's all killer, no filler. Ready? Hey, okay. Hi, I'm Angela Vidal. We're in Los Angeles, traveling along with the fire department. This is so bad. These are the men you'll be shadowing tonight. Wherever they go, you go too. Police are here. It might be a little more serious than we thought. A woman was screaming bloody murder. Yeah. Fire department's about uh, to begin the rescue process. Police say that she lives alone. She's not very social. Okay, okay. We're gonna get you some medical help, okay? Yeah, buddy, come on. Tape everything. You hear me? Tape everything. Officer, sit down. I need an ambulance immediately. Do not try to leave the building, because we'll all be over shortly. Why are they isolating us? Right we are told that tenants inside need medical aid. Chief! Everyone's been evacuated. Everyone's completely safe. Why would he say that? I can't get through to my husband and my daughter has a fever. Oh, my God! We better get out of here. They're not gonna let us out of here alive, are they? No matter what happens, just keep moving. My daughter has a fever. I think I know what this is. We need a doctor. Whose apartment is this? Oh my god. You have no idea how bad this thing is. The man who lives here. Set in Barcelona, Wreck was released in Spain in late November of 2007. Hollywood already had an English-language remake out in early October, less than a year later. 
With no time to do a more creative adaptation, Quarantine just goes the Gus Van Sant route of a tedious shot-by-shot remake. Rex directors were not Alfred Hitchcock, so their appeal was in their excitement to make a movie that thrilled on spontaneity and nervous energy. You get neither from a paint-by-numbers reproduction. Another major obstacle to immersion is the poor choice to cast almost nothing but familiar faces in the remake. It's hard to believe Dexter's foster sister, reboot Thomas Magnum, that dude from Scandal, that other dude from Ally McBeal, that other other dude from The Practice, and Callisto from X-Men are in mortal danger. I suppose Rex completists, if there's such a thing, may appreciate the extended sequences with American characters and a change to the nature of the affliction. I'll also give the filmmakers points for a racially diverse cast. Quarantine isn't interesting enough to be bad, just more obviously staged and entirely less necessary than the original film. It basically exists solely for people who absolutely refuse to read subtitles. This summer... The visionary creators of one of the scariest films of all time dare you to take a second look. Wreck 2. Again, like The Blair Witch Project, Wreck was a single-camera movie in which the lens served as a proxy for the viewer's virtual involvement in the proceedings. Wreck traded on the sense of the film being recorded live in a reality too near to our own for comfort. Like The Blair Witch Project 2, Book of Shadows, Record 2, stylized as Wreck Squared, is a glossy Hollywood sequel that chucks everything that worked about the first film out the window so that the filmmakers could prove that they were capable of hacking out the usual bullshit. Instead of a low-res, real-time environment, Wreck 2 is your basic multiplayer first-person shooter with shifting vantage points, flashbacks, and techno-tomfoolery. A big part of what made Wreck work was its simplicity. Common everyday people found themselves in an extraordinary, terrifying circumstance. Tension built slowly until the levee broke, and then the situation became bad, topped by worse, along a progressive trip through the infernal. The characters didn't need to be developed, because they were proxies for you, the viewer. These were, relatively speaking, innocents caught in a harrowing ordeal not of their own making, which the audience could sympathize with. Not to be outdone by quarantine, Wreck 2 begins 15 minutes after the conclusion of the original, and two years after its release. At least quarantine had a blueprint for its narrow turnaround. And I suppose Wreck 2 does as well, by Xeroxing Resident Evil's own shameless copying of genre favorites. Tell me if this sounds familiar. A SWAT team enters a building full of rage virus sufferers to investigate the cause of the outbreak. Instead of taking the audience with them, the viewer is a passive spectator in a video game movie derivative of Aliens and the tenement sequence from Dawn of the Dead. The perspective camera constantly changes, gets dropped on its side, loses sound, blinks out, incessantly reminding the audience they're watching various recordings from a prior time. Only one of the SWAT team members exhibits any personality, and that one is of an obnoxiously overreactive nature, so that the rest of the team are essentially the players' various lives and progressing through the game. First-time players, I should say, because everyone in this flick is a nimrod of the type audiences impatiently wait to die for their stupidity. You can relate to the original cast because they weren't going into the spooky deserted house, so they didn't deserve their fate any more than you would in their shoes. Rack 2 is your more typical social Darwinism in action. Cannon fodder dummies too stupid to live. The viewer holds them in contempt because the audience is wise enough not to join the cast in this experience. So whatever appeal remains lies in taking pleasure in their demise. Also, could someone please explain to bad comedy and scary movie directors that the only response having your actors shouting all their lines invokes is a desire for them to just shut the fuck up. One of the more common faults of horror movie sequels is to build on an ongoing mythology. The more familiar you are with something, the less frightening it is. 
and the better equipped you are to deal with it. Even if crosses or garlic fail to kill your particular vampire, just keep going down the checklist until you find something foolproof. Once you demystify a threat, you remove much of the horror, and are left with a simple fantasy or science fiction story instead. In Wreck, one of the more effective reveals toward the end of the picture was the true nature of the contagion. Wreck 2 picks up from that point, and then negates its impact with a litany of direct swipes from other pictures or familiar mythos. Yeah, mother sex cock in hell is easily repurposed, as are visual ticks from the decade of Japanese horror exports that preceded it. Even Wreck's own technique of still creatures suddenly rushing the camera's abuse so often, and reproduced so exactingly, that it begins to feel more like a replay than anything to shriek at. Wreck 2 is a predictable franchise-killing knockoff of a shitload of other movies, right up to its unsurprising twist ending. If you found yourself haunted by Wreck, this sequel is the perfect antidote, as it effectively neutralizes any residual impact of the original. Unless you've been anxiously anticipating a truly faithful screen adaptation of House of the Dead, leave this lie. Mobile Command, this is Recon 1. We're going in. Mobile, we have multiple confirmed dead. What's going on? I don't know. Some apartment building in L.A.? It's good we're flying away. Sir? 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 You're going to have to stay still, okay? Why are we stopped? The tower's not clearing us for a gate. Why? Who won't tell us! Captain! That door will take you to tarmac level. This has never been locked before. Locked what? Down. Attention flight 318. You are now under quarantine. Do not attempt to leave. <laughs> we need your help. Let's go. Our orders are to keep you alive and contained. It took three years for the sequel to the remake, Quarantine 2 Terminal, to take flight. See, I added a pun to a pun there. It technically got a limited theatrical release, but it looks DTV, and that's how most people saw it. I actually don't know if all that many saw it that way either. It's not like we made it to Quarantine 4 boating or anything. Anyway, this one has Mercedes Mason, who would go on to do one of the Walking Dead spinoffs, and a few other women who are clearly model-pretty actresses throughout the picture. This is despite all the sweaty rabbit action on a plane and in an incredibly small, poorly lit, and fake-looking airport. It doesn't help that quarantine stealing the central conceit of 12 monkeys just reminds you that you'd rather watch Madeline Stowe be model-pretty in that instead. Look, Quarantine 2 isn't the worst. It's slow-moving, predictable, and you can get better thrills doing the same basic stuff elsewhere, but we've all seen worse. We are gathered here today to bear witness to this holy matrimony, to celebrate a love that is caring, accepting, and enduring of all things. For what God has joined together, let no man tear apart.
Rec 3 Genesis. first two rec reviews, as with last episode's Return of the Living Dead 3, were cribbed from my moribund blog. I began drafting a review for Rec 3, Hennessy's, in the same year it was released, but lost interest before I finished and never published it. That's your short form review right there. Being a zombie franchise, both literally and figuratively, hopes for the demise of Rec after one lousy sequel were premature by half. While the American side was done in 2011, the third Wreck was out a year later with a fourth and planned final installment already in the works. The co-writers and co-directors of the first two films decided to split up for the last two. And I suppose you could say Paco Plaza was the more bold of the two. It may not be very well regarded in today's tech-savvy world, but there's something to be said for planned obsolescence. For instance, decades of Hollywood movies were single-serving features made to be seen in one sitting for a limited time before disappearing from circulation, at least until television. Serialized programming eventually changed how we engage with our entertainment, hence sequels. In the early days, sequels were believed to be governed by the laws of diminishing returns in terms of profitability, so less money and effort were thrown at each sequel until the Golden Goose shit its guts out completely. Planet of the Apes was a prime example of that, with each chapter assumed to be the last while in production, and requiring ever-increasing innovation and risk to work within the shrinking budgetary constraints. By killing everyone and blowing up the ape planet in the second film, the series birthed another quirky convention of sequelitis that continues to this day. Third movie, Jinx. Epic storylines avoid the problem by essentially being one big movie broken into a trilogy, functioning as a three-act play writ large. All the major concluding action is left for the final act, and all the engrossing setup is in the first, so the second movie is often the sagging, vulnerable belly of a series. It's still a major problem with movies created to be finite, though, as an unplanned sequel is like an unplanned pregnancy. The issue is especially problematic with horror movies, which have always tended to have rather final finales. A lot of second horror movies get by either recycling the first film or answering the lingering questions. Why was Michael Myers so fixated on Laurie Strode? How did things go awry with Skynet? Where did the Cenobites come from? Once asked and answered, what's left for the third movie? A Terminator undoes another Terminator's undoing of a future their existences are contingent upon to time travel in the first place? Three apes escape to present day Earth? Pinhead starts quipping like Freddy Krueger while creating a CD Cenobite to chase after Jadzia Dax? Michael Myers has rendered a brief fictional element in a more fantastical movie taking place within a new story about druids trying to murder children on Halloween with the help of circuitry and Stonehenge? Even where accidental movies aren't bad, they're often very odd. This leads us to Wreck Cubed. Wreck was one of the most effectively terrifying movies I've ever seen. Wreck 2 was a hugely disappointing pre-sequel that colored in the margins of the first flick with pale shades of Cameron's aliens. Wreck 3 Genesis involves the same monsters as the first films, but despite the title, doesn't show the beginnings of the quasi-zombie outbreak. In fact, there's really no clear indication whether it takes place before, during, after, or even within a different continuity as the first two. I guess there was a sick dog in the first one that may have infected a guest in the third one, but that's an awfully tenuous connection. That thinness is glaring given that there's a lot of exposition regarding the nature of the menace here, but it flies in the face of the previous films and is dry in its matter-of-fact presentation. The threat is assigned weaknesses like garlic and crosses for vampires, and is therefore swiftly diminished, while figures that haven't earned the answers exploit them. I mean, we literally spent the entire first movie figuring out what was going on, and this third one it's all just handed to them on a silver platter. At a wedding reception. I guess the silver platter is kind of appropriate. Despite all those solutions, there's no further explanation of the phenomena from the first films, putting the lie to the subtitle. While Wreck fulfilled the promise of the found footage trend, the sequel abandons it pointedly early on to offer a more conventional movie movie. The heightened intimacy of home videos is lost, and the weakness of the writing of the protagonist is highlighted. Despite the potential of a gathering of all your friends and loved ones in one place turning evil and trying to kill you in savage fashion, 
Only two scenes even attempt to mine the vein of emotional trauma, but fail without a heartfelt core to back them up. There's some attempts at humor and gonzo elements, but they're half-hearted and fall flat. All that having been said, by the low standards of the horror genre, Wreck 3 is still passable. The effects are solid, the wedding reception is an uncommon setting, there's some mildly amusing bits, and the lead actors are very easy on the eyes. It works fine as a diversion or a palate cleanser, in the same manner as Season of the Witch, but in the grand scheme of a larger franchise would be easily forgotten. One of my favorite horror sequels is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, where a contemptuous original director driven to produce a very late sequel by financial needs overtly parodies his own work. I wonder if Paco Plaza looked at the tepid retread of Wreck 2 and decided to draw from the more nutty comedy side of the zombie spectrum, along the lines of a Raimi or Jackson. Unfortunately, the fifth film in as many years doesn't lend itself to radically altering the formula, and Plaza simply isn't funny or crazy enough to pull off the tangent. The gore is over the top, but weak in comparison to its antecedents, so lack of shock joins the absence of laughs. For me, the only truly indelible element is the image of the chainsaw-wielding bride played by Leticia Dolera, the most beautiful actress in a series partially defined by attractive leads. That and the cruelty of the pitch-black ending, which feels unearned in a movie that was relatively frothy up until that point. being excited for Wreck 3, which had a swell trailer and looked novel enough to maybe partially return to the glories of the original. Not sure if it was a fool me once or fool me twice, but my lesson was learned by 2014's Wreck 4 Apocalypse. I mean, just mathematically speaking, Wreck to the Fourth Power was 10 years late to the Apocalypse subtitle that Resident Evil had already misapplied to its first sequel. Settle down, folks. The world still stands at the end of both movies. Perhaps because I never finished my Genesis print review, I didn't even start an Apocalypse one. But I think it speaks just as much to the relative lack of quality that I wasn't particularly interested in sorting that matter out. Like two of the Resident Evil movies, this one takes place on a large tanker boat, but it's like all of this one. So it's the speed two of zombie movies. Except I don't think there's many knots per hour traveled. It's fairly adrift, actually. Where Paco Plaza got weird with a prequel, Jomé Belaguero goes quarantine by stripping out the more unique elements of the franchise for a paint-by-numbers, homicidal affection in a confined area deal. 
One reason I never reviewed it before is that I only half watched The Thing the first time. This one borrows the most from John Carpenter's The Thing, with Manuela Belasco returning as reporter Angela Vidal, having to prove to skeptical scientists that she's not infected while trying to determine who is through makeshift experiments. It doesn't matter much, though. Since rat monkeys stolen from Braindead Island initiated a fast-acting outbreak among the ship's crew, so we're predictably down to chopping up zombies with an outboard motor by the end. Despite the enormous success of Wreck to the Root of One, earning over 16 times its production budget, all the sequels were made for about $2 million each. I guess the CGI boat ate up enough euros that the wreck of L. Edmund Fitzgerald here looks cheaper and plays slower than even Quarantine 2. It's certainly less witty, and I'll remind you that they thought Terminal was a clever subtitle. It's been at least a decade since my first viewing of Wreck, and it does seem to have a bit of a legacy. The good one came in at number 55 on Rolling Stone's 60 Greatest Horror Movies of the 21st Century. I suspect this was owing more to it being an obscure foreign language film rather than it in any way being less than Saw sequels. Where Rolling Stone was firmly middle-brow, Slant took a deeper dive with its 50 Greatest Horror Movies of the 21st Century, where Wreck ranked a more respectable number 30. Den of Geek approved Wreck on its unnumbered 52-count list, where the New York Times and BFI ignored it entirely on theirs, though BFI readers suggested it as fourth best of the ones they missed. Probably the most egalitarian option is Ranker, which places it number 17 for best of the century, ahead of the Babadook and the underrated Evil Dead remake, but behind It Chapter 1 and Drag Me to Hell. The Boston.com staff were kindest of all, slotting it at number 13 of their 60 scariest movies of all time, well ahead of original flavor Dawn of the Dead at number 22, and the remake at number 54, not to mention Evil Dead 2 and its greatest influence, 28 Days Later. The only zombie movie to list higher was The Granddaddy of Them All, Night of the Living Dead at number 6. It's a tricky thing to write horror movies. For instance, aside from the grisly dark turn once they reach the Winchester, does the light horror comedy of Shaun of the Dead make a lick of sense being compared to the crushing trauma inflicted by heredity? Likewise, enjoyment and taste aren't necessarily the same thing. I've pretty much given a hard pass to the entire new French extremity movement, but in the same time period, I giddily relished each new installment of the Resident Evil series theatrically. Well, the second and sixth ones sucked, but I still love that franchise enough that I won't be covering it on ZombieCast. For me, it rates its own showcase someday, even though I know all of those movies are objectively bad. By the way, how many of you were totally going OCD this entire time because I didn't mention Resident Evil at the beginning of the segment amongst the few long-running zombie franchises. You are seen. Anyway, what I can say about the various online rankings is that the first time watching Wreck with my girlfriend, we were both climbing the bedroom walls, pulling our legs up to our chests, trying to keep out of reach of the zombies. Isn't that the exact reaction you hope for going into a horror movie? For me, Wreck is a solid top 20 selection, at least of the current century, if not my entire experience. Hell, I watched three shit sequels and two inferior American versions chasing the rotting, carnivorous, foaming-at-the-mouth dragon of the sensation offered by that initial viewing. Alongside Dawn of the Dead, the only wreck worth recording stacks up as one of the very best the zombie genre has to offer. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. Another episode bites the dust. I did not mean to take two and a half months. It just worked out that way. Folks who were waiting on this one include the 20th Century Geek podcast, Adriano, Ann Labs, Chris Thompson, CJ, who wrote Good to Hear the Zombie Cast in the lineup again. Good episode. Seems like you put a lot of work in this one. Hopefully you don't stop. Dirk Ashton, El Romero Romero, Grave Rolls Podcast, Illegal Machine, who added, This is good shit, COVID-19 quarantine movie watch list. Into the Weird, I was Joe Crawford, Just in Time with the J&T Baggers, Keith G. Baker, King Dinosaur, Cassinia, 
the list game who also promoted their generation z podcast about the politics of zombiedom included a lot of children's characters zombified as well smurf cookie monster so forth thank you your so the mess hall podcast michael robert randy caldwell who wrote i was listening while driving through the countryside in fog as thick as clam chowder this morning zombies and fog are a nice combination richard van ingram added however zombies and clam chowder is foul clam chowder and zombies is probably futile caldwell replied if you have seen the videos of how they make chicken mcnuggets you probably would never want to know about some of the secret ingredients in clam chowder odell abner dracula joined in look i've been sprinkling zombie flakes in my chowder for 20 years and i am fine fit as a fiddle coughs in the elbow Caldwell returned with, I stopped eating Jello years ago because of the zombie flakes. Van Ingram finished with, I used to work with a bunch of zombie flakes. Never again. Where were we? Oh yeah. Richard G. Ryan Daly was saying, Burns. Shocktopus. Shanna Banana. Talk Nerdy to Me podcast. Tim Mason. Trader Junkies podcast. World of Worlds podcast. And Xenozoic Xenophiles podcast. 